On today's show, Ben and I are joined by Jared Dillian, author of The Daily Dirt Nap. On today's episode, we talk about why you probably shouldn't buy a German car, why Jared thinks you should pay down your mortgage, and other tips for living a stress-free financial life from his new book, No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. We are joined today by Jared Dillian. Jared is the author of a new book. I'm, I'm holding it up like the audience could see this. They can't. This is a podcast. But it's called No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. Jared is the author and editor of The Daily Dirt Nap. Jared has a, a, a newsletter that I read. I don't know. The newsletter is not where we're going to get these best. What is that? It's like essays? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Jared spent a long time on Wall Street. He was at Lehman Brothers doing a lot of ETF trading. On the cover of your book, Gregory Zuckerman says, uh, an independent thinker with a unique voice. And I was just telling Jared before we started, Jared is the only person that I read, and I do read a lot of his stuff, who really and truly says what he thinks. Jared, I'm curious because you write, it seems like you write with so much freedom. Are you thinking, like, as you're writing, on at least what I read, we're going to get these bastards. Are you thinking in the back of your mind, like what is the person on the other end of this going to think, or are you truly unbridled? No, I don't. I don't. I generally don't think about what somebody's going to think. Although I will say that I do self-edit. It may not seem like it, but there <laughs> there are hot takes that are just steaming at the bottom of my hot take hamper that never come out. There's things that I would like to write. Um, but if you if you check out my second book, All the Evil of This World, that's where they all are. Like that's that's you know. I came across your your newsletter because Michael kept just sending me stuff saying you've got to read what Dillian wrote today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you take a blowtorch to a lot of things, which you do in in the book as well. But Jared, this is this is your like sixth book. I mean, you've fourth, you're you're fourth book fourth. fourth. Book. All right. Well, you'll you'll get to a sixth. Was, yeah. was Street was Street Freak the first one? Yeah, that was the first one. Yeah. So Street Freak was about your experiences during the meltdown at Lehman. Yeah, I mean, and it wasn't strictly a Lehman Brothers book. It was about me having bipolar disorder and working on Wall Street, and you know, obviously, I worked there from nine eleven to the bankruptcy, and it's about that time. So, uh, all right, I. I don't think I ever asked you this. Where did the name Daily Dirt Nap come from? Or am I an idiot? Is that a phrase that I just don't know about? Or, is, or did you make that up? So I used to be a local on the Peacoast Options Exchange. And Dirt Nap was a big word on that exchange. Like the traders on the floor would say, oh my God, the market's taking a dirt nap. It was like a big word on that floor. So I kind of brought it back to New York. And then I made it part of the newsletter. So... What did it mean when the market was taking a dirt nap? Was that like the market was getting crushed? Yeah, 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 yeah. It sounds like okay. a it sounds like a mafia phrase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think the the part I like most about your book is that you do focus on the stress part because something Michael and I talk about all the time is we hear from and talk to wealthy individuals who are so stressed out about their money because of their place in life because there's people richer than them or whatever, 
And the whole idea that I've always thought is that if you're constantly worried about money all the time, I don't care how rich or wealthy you are, you're not really, a, you're not living a rich life because it just consumes you. So I like how you take the book from, from that angle. At what point in your life, because you talk about your own experiences, did you let that stress side of things go and not worry about money as much anymore? Well, first of all, let me say, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, um, Financial stress is not related to how much money you have at all. You know, like you said, there's billionaires who are like freaked out about money. They think they're going to lose everything like all the time. And then you have people with no money living paycheck to paycheck. And as long as their basic needs are met and they don't have any debt and they don't have any risk, they are, they don't worry about money at all, you know? So I've actually... You know, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because this is the way I have lived my life really since I graduated from college, you know, with a couple iterations along the way. Like, you know, I, in the book, I talk about the fact that I used to be a CF, you know, and I'm no longer a CF. But so, um, so for, for those for for those who haven't read the book yet, Jared's talking about cheap. F and you're so right, Jared, when you talk about like. There's really very little correlation between money and real happiness and in weird ways like money and even like how stressed people are about it. I was a valet parker for many years and it was always the assholes in the nice cars who were CFs who gave me a dollar folded up a million times as if I wasn't going to unfold it. And I could I can't tell you how many times people in 15-year-old beaters we're giving me five and ten dollars, like yeah. regularly. Yeah. So tell me about your transition from CF to how you live now. Well, in the book, I talk about I tell the story about how I went out to San Francisco in 2012, and I was I was making decent money with the newsletter. I mean, the newsletter was pretty new, but I was making a few hundred thousand a year. And I went in the Prada store in Union Square. And I didn't even know what Prada was. Like I was a dork and I didn't I didn't know anything about fashion. But I just had some time to kill and I walked in this Prada store and I see a pair of boots. And I was like, oh my God, those are the those are the best boots I've ever seen. And I picked them up and I look at the price tag and they were a thousand bucks. So I said, I can't buy these boots. So I walked out of the store and I did a couple laps around Union Square. And then I thought about it. I'm like, actually, I can't. You know, I make, I make decent money. You know, I like the boots. The boots are going to make me happy. So that was the moment at which I crossed over from being a CF to just a normal person that has some perspective on, you know, the fact that, look, like you make decent money, you can afford nice things. Like that's kind of the purpose of money is to buy things that make you happy, you know? What a novel oh. concept. <laughs> well, I like how you, you, you balance it out with, you You say you have the cheap on one end, you have the high rollers on the other end, and the happy life or the stress-free life is finding somewhere between. So you're you're spending on some things like that that you can be okay with, but other areas of your life you have to cut back. And that's, that's the hard part for people is not going to the extremes. Yeah, and the things you have to cut back on, there's basically three big things, and it's your house, your car, and student loans, like those three things. Like everything else is just small stuff and people get really focused on peewee bullshit that does not matter. You know, like there's, there's people who make six figures who stand in the grocery store and sit there and try to figure out which is the cheapest can of soup, 
You know, it just, it doesn't matter. Like just grab a can of soup and put it in the cart, you know, but there's the three big things, the house, if you get a house that's a little bit bigger, it's going to cost a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars more. You're going to be paying interest on that over the course of 30 years. It's going to be multiple six figures on in interest. That is the stuff that matters, not buying coffee on the way into work. The $4 you spend on a cup of coffee does not matter at all. I love how you talk about like people are unable to give up on small, give up small luxuries. And I cannot agree more. Uh, small luxuries are, are what make life worth living. It's so weird though, because a lot of the personal finance industry is focused on depriving yourself. And like money is not for hoarding. The goal of life is not to have a pile of money that you can't spend. The goal of money is to spend it and enjoy it. So talk about it is getting the big things right. You, you got you got me jumping around in my seat over here because I'm I'm really I'm really fired up about this. There is a personal finance industry in this country, right? You have some really big names. I can name them if you want, but they all pretty much say the same thing: that you should re, just relentlessly cut small expenses, small luxuries, and this it just does not matter. Like these things don't matter. It's not the little things, it's the big things. And in this country, we're kind of taught that the, it's the little things that matter. In the book, I talk about the make your bed speech by Admiral McRaven, you know, where if you make your bed in the morning, you're going to have like a terrific day. It's not the little things that count. It's the big things that count. So I love the, the stat that you put in here that I didn't realize uh, about the car thing. So I agree with you. you got to get the big things right, especially the car and the house and student loans is a bigger one probably now than it was back in the day. But you said the average person spends 4% of their time driving a car. It, and I am more of an A to B kind of guy. But, but say do, it. You're, no, say it. You're a big truck shamer. Well, no, I understand. I Listen, I'm okay with people driving a luxury vehicle or driving a huge truck that costs 80 grand as long as their other stuff is taken care of. And the whole point you make in the book too that I really like is you're saying, listen, when you're young, you're probably going to have to be more of a CF and you're going to have to save a little bit, and, and but your relationship with money should change and evolve over time as you make more money and progress your career. And that's exactly what's happened to me. And I think that that's the most important for, point for people. And it's hard if you pigeonhole yourself into one area and or one way of looking at money that it's hard to ever change your mind and get out of that mindset. Yeah, cars, cars really do not matter. You know, I mean, what, what I talk about in the book is that the capacity utilization of a car is 4%, right? So if you had four people in a car driving 24 hours a day, the capacity utilization would be 100%. And instead, we have one person, you drive it a half hour to work, it sits in the parking lot all day, you drive it a half hour home, it's, it sits in your driveway, it, you're using it 4% of the time. And cars just do not matter. So I'm a Toyota guy. Like you mentioned, Toyota and chill, right? Like I buy Toyotas. Um, I drive them for 10 years. They're fully depreciated. And that's how you end up saving money. I love this quote, worrying about money is stupid. Because there are just, there are choices that we can make to reduce that worry. And financial stress is the source of most people's stress. And it just need not be that way. The fire 
the fire movement, you take a blowtorch to this, and I love it. Michael sent me this a couple weeks ago. It was yeah, you really go after the fire community. Your, your essay <laughs> on fire was hilarious, but you wrote, "I don't want to live in deprivation for 15 years, so that I could live in deprivation for the next 40 years." <laughs> I Ben and I joke about this quite a bit. I don't understand this mentality. I think this has to be this has to be deep rooted in some sort of psychological something or the other. It's the, the, the fire movement is an anti-consumption movement, right? It's about the idea that we shouldn't consume anything. We shouldn't produce anything. We should just exist and just let time pass. Like uh, it, it is, it is one of the, you know, you know, what's funny is there's the whole van life thing, which goes along with this thing. You probably heard about van life where you sell off all your positions and, and you drive around in a van. Like, you know, Chris Farley, there's that joke about living in a van down by the river. Well, now people actually want to live in a van down by the river, you know? Well, I think the other thing is about, about fire especially is a lot of people just really hate their jobs and they don't look what they do. And they think if I save 80% of my income for the next eight years and I live off of it forever. I don't have to go to this soul-sucking job anymore. I think that would solve a lot of the problems for people if they actually found a career or 100%. a company that they actually enjoyed working for. 100%. But, you know, what I've found is the people who hate their jobs will hate their jobs no matter what job they have, right? It's, it's, really, about, it's really about your attitude. You know, I've never hated a job. Like, I was in the Coast Guard. Like, I was in the military. It was hard. I didn't hate my job. You know, I wasn't like dying to get out of there every day. So I think I I think it's really there's there's a certain there's a certain psychological profile of somebody who dislikes their job and they want to stop working. But then you stop working and what are you doing with all this time? You know, like what are you doing with this time? And then I then I talked about the fact that okay, you saved up a million bucks and you're age 35 and you dropped out of the workforce. And what are you doing for the next 50 years? You're watching that million dollars tick up, tick down, go up and down every day. Anytime the market goes down 20%, you're freaking out. You think you have to go back to work. Like it's miserable. I don't know any, I don't know why anybody would choose this. It also seems socially isolating. Yeah. Like what do you talk? What do you if you don't know coworkers and no Whatever. Um, okay, let's talk about houses. So you say a house is not an investment. I completely agree. My insurance bill that I paid today proves this. People like to talk about the house that their parents bought for 150 that's now worth 400 without talking about all of the things, all of the expenses that, that went into that. You like prepaying a mortgage as quickly as possible. I think Ben and I, this might not surprise you, would disagree. However, however, I feel like the way that you lay it out, I understand completely. And I think to prepay or to not prepay your house is one of the most personal things about personal finance where I see both sides. I don't think there's like a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do. I really think that this is situation, financial dependent, uh, personality dependent, and all those sort of things. With that said, why do you like to prepay the mortgage? So in 2010, when I moved to South Carolina, uh, I bought a pretty cheap house. I mean, housing values around here are pretty cheap anyway, but it was a $280,000 house. And I was like, screw it. I'm just going to pay cash. I have the cash. I'll just pay cash. I lived in that house for five years. Best five years ever. 
like didn't have a mortgage payment, you know, and I started to think about it. I'm like, you know, no matter what bad things happen in my life, whether I get into a car accident or I get cancer or I have legal problems or something, nobody can take this house away from me. It's paid for. I own it free and clear. Nobody can take it away from me. And that peace of mind was incredible. The next house I bought in 2015, I put 35% down and I paid that mortgage off in three and a half years. So for the last six or seven years, I've been living in it free and clear, same thing. So it's really the one downside of prepaying your mortgage, which I will admit to, is you lose liquidity, okay? So once you send that check into the bank, you can't get that money out, not until you sell the house. But so you, you could afford liquidity. but you could afford that. You could afford to give it a little liquidity. Yeah. 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 So it really is situation dependent. The thing that I like, the angle that I that I like is, of course, you're paying way less interest, right? That's a given. But if you think about um, paths of return, yeah, like I would say, why would the hell would I ever pay off a 3% mortgage when I can invest it and do better than 3%? But your point is that you're paying that 3% off in a straight line. Like you know that you're getting it. You don't know what you're getting in the market in any given year. And when you combine that with the peace of mind, with the interest, I totally, I wouldn't push back. I get it. It's just- You never got a little tempted to take some money out at 3% to borrow against it? Just a little tempted? No, I never did. And the funny, and that calculus has changed now that interest rates are higher. Yeah. So before you could earn a certain 3% or an uncertain 9%, but now you can earn a certain 7% or an uncertain 9%. It makes, with interest rates higher, it makes much more sense to pay off the mortgage now than it did a couple years ago. I agree with so. that. One of the chapters in the book, you talk about relationships and money, and you talk about obviously the one of the most important things you choices you make is is your spouse and being on the same page. But in the next segment, you talk about money and friends, and I actually think friends add more stress to the situation than ever these days when it comes to uh, thinking about your finances the right way because it's so much easier to see the vacations your friends are taking on social media and the stuff they're buying. In, in comparing yourself to the Joneses used to be just the people down the block or the people that you worked with. And now it's literally everyone on Instagram and social media. And it's it's impossible to not compare yourself to others. So how do you think about that in terms of trying to live a stress-free financial life and comparing yourself to others when it's so hard to just live in your own bubble these days? Yeah, it's it's funny. Like I, I never had that reflex. You know, I'm on Facebook like a lot of Generation Xers. And I see, you know, I have some very wealthy friends, much wealthier than I am. I'm friends with a guy who built this like $15 million house in Silicon Valley. Like I'm, you know, I'm friends with a lot of rich people and I look at them and I'm just like, that's their path and I'm on my path and that's totally fine, you know? So I don't get FOMO. Like, it, like I, I just, I don't get it in the stock market. I don't get it in real life. I don't, I don't really, I don't covet my neighbor's possessions. You know, I just kind of do my own thing. So that's, that's unique. Most people, most people cannot watch somebody who they feel is intellectually inferior, inferior to them, <laughs> make more money. And I totally get that. It is a very normal thing to covet, especially, especially if it's like, the worst is, I guess, let's just use crypto as an example, where you see people that you think are dumb and something that you think is dumb getting rich. That is really difficult to stand by. So I'll tell you what, actually. The first time I bought Bitcoin was in 2000, it was June 2020. 
And the reason why I bought it was it was emotional. Howard Lindsay calls it schmuck insurance. For me, it was an emotional hedge against it going to 100,000. I do have FOMO. And I know that if I saw this go to 100,000 and I owned zero, I would spontaneously combust. Like I would just go up and smoke. So in order to protect myself, because I'm weak, I am weak and I'm not afraid to admit it. In order to protect myself from having those bad feelings, I capitulated and said, F- I, I got to own some of this. Michael so always I know says, myself. Michael always says, I'm going to be fearful and other people are fearful. So maybe the, that's the part is, is like, Jared, you seem to know yourself and be comfortable in your skin. Michael does too. I do think that's an important part of it is, is understanding your own personality and what the the levers are that are gonna that are gonna impact your your feelings about money. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think the best way to really find out who you are as an investor is to just get after it. Like Ben and I have very different predispositions. I am a gambler. When Ben opened his first account, I think Ben, did you buy a balance? Did you buy a target date fund? I bought a target date fund on my IRA. It was my it's first unbelievable. Ever his first ever investment was a target date fund. Now I I am able to bucket my personalities. Like in my retirement funds, I am Jack Bogle. Like I just keep buying index funds and I will keep doing that forever. And then in my this account and my that account, I behave much differently, which I don't think is totally irrational. Well, it is irrational. There is um, you know, Richard Thaler talks about this this ideal of uh, compartmentalization, like, cause money is fungible, right? So but it it's, really but it's rational, it's it. rational irrationality. It's rational irrationality. <laughs> yes. My first investment was also an index fund in 1997. I bought a Vanguard index fund. The first stock I bought was Philip Morris in fall of 1998 the week before the Engle case, you know, the master settlement agreement before. So it was trading at 18 or 19 bucks. The stock was totally bombed out. It had like an eight or 10% dividend and I bought it and the stock went up after the settlement and it went to 25 and I sold it and then it went to 80. So you always hear these stories about people on Wall Street where they make all this money, they get these big bonuses, and they might be the masters of the universe when it comes to investing, understanding markets, but they're terrible at managing their own personal finances. Did you learn anything like that when you worked on Wall Street that you saw people overspending or not paying attention? Because that, oh that's kind God, of the, yeah. okay, so you learned a lot about personal finance yeah. that way. Yeah. I mean, it was, there were, you know, coming out of Lehman Brothers, you know, I lost a lot of money in stock. My stock went to zero, right? You know, I, t- I basically, in the financial crisis, I took a 50% haircut with my personal investments in the, in the, in the Lehman stock, you know, there were some people who were basically financially ruined by the bankruptcy. And there were some people who were totally fine. And it all depends upon how you structure your financial affairs. You know, some people were very conservative. So. Jared, you wrote, there's nothing wrong with trading stocks recreationally, as long as you're being honest about your intentions. That's what I do in one of my accounts. I, I, I'm not like slinging, right? I, I, I pretty much buy and uh, with the intention of holding at least for a little while, but I do so because I get personal enjoyment out of it. I have zero expectations that I'm going to beat the S&P 500, but the purpose of that financial account is not to beat the S&P 500. It's to provide me with entertainment. I know that from what I've seen in your writing, you don't have that gene. You approach 
the investing side, much less you're not you're not looking for thrills. No, no, absolutely not. No. Um there, you know, the funny thing is, is that I'm in the financial entertainment business. Okay. I have a newsletter for sophisticated investors. Okay. And the goal is to beat the S&P 500. I don't think I do uh, consistently, you know, but it's fun to try. It's fun to think that you can. There's a lot of people who invest as a hobby, right? And, and that's, that's what it is. It's a hobby. And that's a good hobby to have. But if the hobby sort of takes over your life and you devote 100% of your assets to some trading account where you think you're going to beat the markets, you know, it's a couple, a couple months ago, I talked to somebody who talked to somebody who worked at one of the online brokerages. Okay, I won't say which one. But they said the online brokerages, their business model is basically to acquire new customers all the time. Because what happens is they acquire a customer, they get ten dollars or $20,000 in funds, and over the course of about five years, that goes to zero, and they stop trading. And then they have to acquire new customers. Like That's generally what happens with people's recreational trading activity, is that over time, it will go to zero. I like- Buy, lo- buy, buy high, sell low, repeat until broke. Yep. One of the parts of the book that I like for you that you say that nothing dispel you say like listen everyone in the U.S. is not some YOLO spender who's buying the big truck and and totally overdoing it. Most people are pretty decent with their money, and I yeah. think that's I think that's true with investing too. But you say you know people budget and they buy stuff within their means, but they don't try to make more money. And I think that's the reason that the frugality side of personal finance is so big because it's easier to talk about saving money than it is to help people earn more money. And that that is where the big the big changes come when you make more money. It's way easier for people to save more money when they make more. I think that's pretty obvious and it's something that not a lot of people think about like, oh, that's the part that I should be the lever I should be pulling more as opposed to, you know, making my own toothpaste in the backyard or whatever. You know, Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, the, the way they look at the world is you have a pie, right? This is all the pie we have, and we're going to slice this pie into smaller and smaller pieces. And what I say in the first couple chapters of the book is, just go make another pie, right? Like it's the other thing about this is, cutting expenses is miserable. Like if you're if you're having to undergo austerity and you're cutting expenses, it is the worst thing in the world. You know what's fun though? What's fun is going out and making more money. Like, that's actually fun. I mean, yes, it's more work, but it's, look, like there's been a couple times in my life where I've had like two or three jobs at the same time, and I'm working like 16, 18 hours a day. Those were actually the happiest times in my life. Yeah, so what was the deal? You were in the Coast Guard and getting your MBA at the same time and starting to work on Wall Street? Yeah. (laughs) So my typical day was I would get up at 3.45 in the morning, Ugh. And I would go down to the Pecos, and I would get down there around 5.30, and I would work until noon. Rich, yeah, what's a Pecoast? Uh, the Pacific Coast Options Exchange, right? So I would- Where was uh, that, by the way? Where was it? Yeah. San Francisco, downtown. Okay. And then at noon, I would come back and work for the Coast Guard until 10 at night, and then I would go home and study until about 1 or 2 in the morning- and then I would get up like two hours later and do it again. Like I did that for about a year and a half. I was sleeping like two hours a night. So brutal. It was awesome. 
you talk about money as being a choice and I don't think a lot of people would have like the chutzpah to say that because in certain situations, people have the mental wherewithal, the, the fortitude, the personality, the drive to make it happen. Not everybody is born into a situation where they even would know where to begin to make more money. No, that's true. I mean, a lot of this, but I wasn't born into that situation. You know what I mean? My mother was a teacher and then she was a substance abuse counselor and my father was in the Coast Guard. He was a pilot. So, and my parents divorced when I was seven and then I moved in with my grandmother and we were living on like $10,000 a year, right? Like there was nobody in my family saying you should go work on Wall Street or you should start a business or do anything like that. Like I just figured it out for myself. But the point in the first chapter of the book, I say we all get to choose how much money we have. It is a choice. We get to choose how much money we have. Like there are things I could be doing to make more money, which I don't do because I don't want to do them. Like I could work as a strategist at a bank and like double or say double my salary, right? Like I could do that or I could start a hedge fund. I Like I have the ability to do that. I don't want to do that. My life is like I'm happy and I am choosing how much money I have. Like we all choose. Let's talk about the market a little bit. So when you're writing, how often do you write the newsletter? Is that daily? Yeah, every day. Yeah. Every day. So every day it goes out. What are we talking about now? What's on your mind? You know, I've been uh, I've been bearish on stocks for the last, uh, really since about the middle of December, since about 4,800 in the S&P. And I've been wrong for about the last 5%. And that's been a little bit painful. What probably the biggest bet in the newsletter recently when rates were above 5%, I had a big bet that rates would come down. And that that was that was one of the best trades of the last couple of years. So that worked out really well. So when you're when you're expressing that posture, do you have any preferred vehicles? Are you using futures or ETFs or what exactly? Uh, all the above. Yeah. Who's your who's your audience? Who's your main audience? Is it mostly DIY traders? Is it people on Wall Street? A little bit of both? It is, I would say, 40 or 50 percent institutional, you know, fast money types and probably 50 or 60%, uh, not necessarily retail investors, they're high net worth, they're more sophisticated. But yeah, that's my that's my audience. So. so the book is called No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. And I love the mentality of the goal is not to be a billionaire. The goal is to be happy. Yeah. Um, that's most personal finance books. Like this, this is what... You know, when I started looking into this five or six years ago, I would go into the bookstore and you would see these schlocky books like 12 easy ways to become a millionaire and stuff yeah, like nonsense. that. And I'm like, you know, the goal isn't necessarily to be a millionaire. The goal is to be happy with your financial situation. So this is really a book about financial happiness and financial stress, you know, as you said, is the worst kind of stress because it compounds all your other stress. If you're experiencing stress in another area of your life, let's say you have a kid who's a miscreant and is getting suspended from school, or you have marriage problems or substance abuse or something like that, financial stress makes all of it worse, makes all of it worse, and it's unnecessary. It's all about how you structure your life, your financial life. 
John, before we get out of here, I want to throw one theory that I have at you about financial stress. I think there is a number at which point money starts to dominate your life in a bad way. And I don't think that number is too high. I don't know. I'm sure it's different for everybody. I don't know if it's 8 million or, or 20 million where you start to experience significant lifestyle creep where God forbid the, the money starts to go in reverse, your income starts to go in reverse. You can't, you can't downshift because downshifting is very painful. People start to know about your wealth because it becomes inevitable. It becomes difficult to hide. What's your thoughts on too much money becoming a huge source of stress? Well, you know, I, I worked on Wall Street in a time where the money was very easy and people thought it would go on forever. And people structured their life in such a way they had huge costs of carry. They had big houses. They had expensive cars and stuff like that. And then the game of musical chairs stopped and they were stuck. And some people really, really got hurt by that, you know. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're making decent money, the, the answer is put it aside. You know, put it aside. Pay down debt build up savings. And, you know, if, if you experience a downturn, it won't be as painful and you'll be able to scramble and do something else. So. All right. You don't make it super easy to subscribe to the daily dirt nap. And I have to know why I'm sure there's a story behind that. Uh, well you, so you went to the website. Of course I did. So you have to, <laughs> so you have to email you and I know there's a story behind that because for most places you just click a button and boom, you're in. Why did you do it that way? So a couple reasons. First of all, I've had the form on the website where people can sign up and my business went to zero. Like people <laughs> didn't use the form, right? If I have an email and people email me and I can send a personal response, the likelihood that they're going to subscribe goes way up. So it creates some work for me, but it actually has a much higher success rate. Like, believe it or not, this, the system works, you know? Uh, also, the other thing I can do is I can offer people discounts. Like if I just have a form for 795 bucks on the site, if somebody comes in and they're a student at a university, I can give them a lower rate and stuff like that. So, I, I used to know a guy who ran an RIA and he only would market to people who had $25 million and up. And the only way you could get in touch with him was writing a one-page letter about why you <laughs> wanted to become a client. And it was like self-selecting. To your point, he knew that that person was going to become a client if they reached out that way. It makes yeah. sense. I like that. Yeah. All right, Jared, congrats on the book. No worries how to live a stress-free financial life. Cannot recommend it highly enough. We appreciate you coming on today. Thanks, man. Thanks both of you. 